Well, good morning. Good morning to you who are here. Good morning to you uh, out there. How about I pray and we'll wrestle with the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again that we can uh, sit under the sound of your voice in the Scriptures. And we thank you that we can do that increasingly as a group gathered together physically. Uh, we are so grateful for that. Pray, please, that um, you would heal our country, our world of this virus, that you would make it possible for your people to gather uh, to continue to grow together as is so essential and we do pray for this time now particularly that um, you'd cause your word to be a blessing to us we ask it in Jesus name amen well I hope you've uh, been finding it helpful I've had a number of people over the last little while just say how uh, kind of profound it is to listen to the very words of Jesus now of course the whole Bible is the words of Jesus it's the spiritual word of Jesus from heaven it's the raised resurrected Jesus ascended Jesus speaking to us but what we've been looking at in the last weeks is his actual words while he was on earth and that is a remarkable experience because it actually gets you past those kind of um, myths and legends around the community that sort of form about the Christian mind and what Jesus was really about and how he was really just about love he was really just about you get all kinds of stuff that and do actually go back to the first-hand documents and see for yourself you don't need to be um, relying on others you can read the Bible yourself and to go through the Matthew account of Matthew and see actually what Jesus taught especially in these last days these last, this is likely the Tuesday, the part of the scriptures we're looking at this morning. It's likely the Tuesday before his crucifixion, which is of course on the Friday. So just a couple of days before he, he is, uh, suffers such a gruesome end to his life. And it, uh, it really must sharpen his thinking and mind as he engages with people around him and so on. And it, it really is important to appreciate that context because the, the, on these last few days, what is he going to speak about? Now, we'll have some time Thursday night with the disciples. There is that final night together that he has with them. But on this last day, what, what is he going to talk about in this kind of public, more public setting? Well, what we've seen over the last few weeks is what he talks about is the end. Chapter 23, very quickly, just to chase you through into the context, chapter 23, he has that astonishing, that powerful, that sober uh, word against the leaders of Israel in their capital city. His city as well, the city of David, of course. But he speaks to those uh, leaders, the, the hypocrites. And he says to them these devastating words, verse 38, Look, your house is left to you desolate. It's the end, I take it, actually, it's Jesus pronouncing the end of political Israel. It's the end. Uh, and in fact, he expresses that end in very literal sense when in chapter 24 he talks about the end of the literal house, the building, the temple that will be destroyed. The disciples of verse 3 have, of course, then stirred to ask, well, tell us about this end, the, your return, your coming, and the end of all things, the end of history. And so Jesus, through the first part of 24, expounds on the end. You want to know about the end? Let me tell you about the end. It's complex. We looked at that some weeks ago. It's an end that's expressed in the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus, when the, when the explosion happens on the, uh, this present evil age, the foundations are ripped apart by his death. Uh, but then it happens, it's expressed in AD 70 when the temple itself is destroyed. It is, is just a hollow shell because of the death of Jesus. Now, we no longer need temple. We no longer need sacrifice. We don't need priests. There is only one true priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice is sufficient. And so there is the end, but then there's a final end to come, the end of history. And from verse 36 on, Jesus then moves to 
reflect on how you live in light of that end. How do you live in light of the fact that there is an end coming and you don't know what day it is? You don't know what day the Lord Jesus will return. If, if you knew that he was coming tomorrow, it would be very simple, it would clear the mind. But how do you live in light of the fact that we don't know? And there's a series of parables. We looked at four of them last week. How you live as waiters, people waiting for the end in the context of not knowing when. And today we're coming to the last two of those parables where Jesus fills out what it is to live waiting for the end. Um, now, I want to take you through three things looking at these two parables. The first of which is this. These parables, all of them, and particularly these last two, speak of the reality of judgment again. And that judgment is real and it is serious and it's desperately important that we come to terms with it. Let me take you through this quickly. Each of these last two parables speak to this. The second last one, the one we're looking at, particularly chapter 25, verse 14, is labelled here the parable of the bag of gold. Now, it used to be known as the parable of the talents. There are real people who speak, it's beautiful. It used to be known as the parable of the talents. We'll come back to that in a moment. But what uh, this parable talks about is a man, a master who is leaving, who gives a, a bag of gold, uh, bags of gold to various of his servants, his slaves, and leaves them to put that money to work. The third one of uh, those that he gives this bag of gold to does nothing with it. And Jesus' words there at verse 30 are terrifying. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There'll be such a horror at the consequences of being cast out of the presence of Christ that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The very last parable that we'll look at together, the sheep and the goats, is one that many people will have heard of just in society, in our community. It's again picking up a picture from the ancient world of an ancient shepherd uh, who would have perhaps uh, grazed his sheep and his goats together as a flock, but at night time would separate them off into different pens for their safety and security and so on. And it picks up this image, Jesus picks up this image and says, uh, the end will be like that. The king will come and separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, verse 32, putting the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, the sheep who are loved by the father and the goats who are rejected. And again, there are words of judgment that are terrifying. Look there at verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the words of Jesus, which finish with verse 46, then they'll go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice the language there of eternity. Both futures are eternal futures. Eternal punishment, eternal life. There is no place in Jesus' thinking for what's been called annihilationism where the death is just the end and judgment is final, disappear. No, no, eternal, eternal. Now, I know it's a heavy start-up, isn't it? But hanging with Jesus would have been serious. I mean, he knew how to party, all right? He knew how to have a good time, unlike John the Baptist, who was very sombre and serious all the time. Jesus knew how to have a good time. But he is the one who spoke 
on the realities of this final judgment more than anyone else in the scriptures jesus and he spoke on these things so much because they are real they are serious they're eternal in their consequences it will impact you each of us forever let me lay it on us again the weight of these things the most pressing question you can wrestle with in life are you in relationship with jesus when that day of judgment comes and there is a separation which side which hand of jesus will you be on and therefore how do you live in light of that end it's noteworthy that jesus is speaking about this topic on the last few days of his life he himself is about to go to his death um, and his death is a death not like no other it's a death under the judgment of god for the sins of others the very reason he has come is to give his life as a ransom for many a ransom is of course uh, is the experience of one person giving themselves in place for others that they might go free that's exactly how jesus describes himself he comes to die but in that death he will stand in the place of repentant sinners who have no other hope otherwise but in dying for us in our place he comes under the judgment of god and the thought of that death himself bearing the penalty for sin himself in the garden of gethsemane terrified him he vividly knows how real judgment is how serious how horrifying and i dare say as he comes close to that final event just a few days now out from it his mind is even more focused on it it has been all of his life but perhaps it's now more vivid there's the first thing i want to draw attention to us again this morning from the words of jesus the seriousness of judgment the end to come a day of separation where will you stand here's the second thing it comes from that second last parable the parable that we've often called the parable of the talents how do you live in light of that end the end is coming jesus speaks about it how do you live in light of it when you don't know when that end will come well this parable the parable of the talents parable of the bags of gold uh, tells us this i'll give you the conclusion and then i'll take you through and show you how it works I, I think what this parable is teaching is how do you live in light of that end you make the most of what the lord god has given you to grow his work to grow his work to be about what he's about let me show you this but first clear up a couple of things as we go through first thing to notice is that uh, it is now very helpful the modern translations call this the parable of the bags of gold it used to be called the parable of the talents and just to clarify that because it still kind of logs in our mind that that's the way it thinks um, the, the reason it used to be called the parable of the talents is because the greek word that is now in the modern translated translated bags of gold was just the greek word talaton and the word talaton in greek just meant a weight a heavy weight a talaton of something you see and older translations instead of translating it transliterated it they just took each greek word and turned it into an english word and so talaton the weight just got turned into talent but the problem for most of us in the western world is as soon as we heard the parable of the talents what were we thinking of a parable of 
my skills and abilities, my, whether I was good at music, whether I was good at sport, whether I was good at art, my talents. And so in the Western world, we just heard about developing our gifts, our talents and being better at what we did. But uh, it's not about your talents, it's about bags of gold. So that talent is a much better way of, bags of gold is a much better way of translating it. And in fact, to notice this, that the bags of gold, uh, the bag, the talaton, is a very heavy weight. So I've got a footnote here. If you look there in verse 15, to another he gave five bags of gold, talatons, to another two talatons, to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went on a journey. Now, I've got a footnote down on the bottom of my page that's put in there by the translators and it just draws attention to a talent or bag of gold. A talent, a weight, is worth about 20 years of a day labourer's wage. How much would you earn over 20 years as a labourer? Quick assessment. 500? <laughs> 20 years, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you, you're close. Yeah, 20 years, 10 times, five, 50 grand a year. Yeah, but it could be probably more than that. Around a million dollars, between 500,000 to a million dollars. It's a lot of money. Now, in the ancient world, if it's a talaton of gold, then it's, we're actually talking millions of dollars. This, this man, this master, gives a lot of money to these people. Five talatons of gold, five bags of gold, then two bags of gold. There's the first thing to notice. It's about money, first and foremost. Second thing to notice, the language of servant is not a good translation. So, good translation, calling a talaton a bag of gold, that's a good translation, but calling them servants is not a good translation. It's actually the Greek word for slave. Verse 15, again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his slaves and entrusted his wealth to them slave everywhere the greek word is used in the new testament it means slave not servant now it's understandable why our english translations kind of avoid that language of slave because we've got so many associations with the african slave trade and in the african slave trade you're talking about a racist uh, driven thing it was always African slaves and uh, entirely um, treacherous, abusive, built on aggression and violence. Uh, you, you gain slaves in the African slave trade by force, by abduction, you destroyed and they were largely then crushed as slaves. Now because that's so strong in our minds, whenever we see back into the Bible talk about slaves, we immediately make those associations. But slavery in the ancient world was a different kind of thing. And I don't say this to condone it, but uh, to draw attention to uh, our associations and not the Bible's associations. Slavery in the ancient world uh, was entered into for many reasons. It wasn't, there was some slavery, abduction, but a lot of it happened because of um, poverty, uh, bankruptcy. Uh, and so it wasn't racist, it, 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 had, it was any nationality could end up in slavery. If you tried to start a business and famine came, there wasn't welfare, there wasn't JobKeeper, <laughs> there wasn't a government to look after you. you, you lost everything, you sold yourself into slavery. But you could be a slave who earned money 
was given good jobs and could buy yourself out of slavery. It was more like an indentured servitude. It was a, in broad sense, there were some dimensions of it that were exactly like the African slave trade. And I'm not saying all of this to condone it, but it was broader than it was it is today. Now, knowing that that word slave is a slave will become very important for us as we go through the parable. There's the two things to bear in mind as we go through it. Let me give you the account of what happens. A master goes on a journey, he entrusts his wealth to his slaves. To one he gives five talatons, bags of gold, to another only two, to another one, each according to his ability. You see, what you have here is a group of slaves who are differently abled. Uh, some might be very competent with business, others may be less so. And the master makes an assessment of the slaves that he has. He determines which ones are capable and competent to take the different amounts. He gives them, the ba he gives them his money and he says, put it to work. Now, verse 16 and 17, the first to put it to work, the one who received five, went at once and put his money to work, gained five more. 17, the one with two, put it to work, gained two more. You've got the first two who work hard at it. And there's a lot of work that would have to be done because we're talking about a lot of money. Now, if you get millions of dollars in the ancient world, how do you put it to work? You don't just go and stick it on the stock market. Though that may not be a wise thing at the moment here either, but you don't just stick it somewhere and bang, it's done. You've got to go and buy businesses. You'd have to buy a number of businesses with that amount of money to make it work. You know, a carpentry business, a fishing business, a, a farm. Uh, it's a lot of work to do. Now, the last slave, verse 18, who'd been given one bag, went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. His master's money. Now, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those slaves returned and settled accounts with them after a long time. This is picking up the theme that's been running through these other parables that Jesus keeps saying, you don't know when I'm going to come back and it will be a long time. How do you live in light of the fact that you don't know when it'll be a long time? You see how the parable picks up the themes that have been common up to this point. Well, how have these slaves lived well the first two doubled what had been given and the response of the master verse 21 well done good and faithful slave you've been faithful with a few things i'll put you in charge of many things come and share your master's happiness now notice a couple of things with that statement which is then shared verse 23 with the one who made two more bags out of his two bags of gold well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. Notice a couple of surprising things. The first is this. You have been faithful in a few things. What kind of master talks about having worked with millions of dollars as being faithful in a few things? What kind of master talks like that? One who is very, very wealthy. To think that being involved with just with millions of investments is being faithful in a few, says the master is very wealthy. And then he says, you have been faithful with a few, I will put you in charge of many what must the many be like if the few was millions, do you see? 
It's a surprising piece in this story. The second surprising piece is that the master then says, verse 21, enter, share your master's happiness. Come and share your master's happiness. What master cares about the happiness of his slave such that he wants them to share with and enter into his own joy and happiness? It's quite astonishing and striking, the statement of the master in this story. Now, move out of the world of the parable into the world that Jesus is illustrating. Do you know what I mean? The, the parable is actually illustrating reality in some measure. So what's the reality that it's being illustrated here? Well, I'll give it to you. To come to be a follower of Christ is to become a slave of Christ, first thing. What it is to be a Christian is to be a slave of our Master, the Lord Jesus. We are slaves. Christians throughout the New Testament are called slaves of Christ. Now the NIV, our modern translation, often calls it servant, but it's the word slave. And it often calls it servant, you're a servant of Christ, because the word slavery has such negative connotations for us. But it's slave. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Were you a slave when you were saved, you are the Lord's freed man. Were you free, you are now the Lord's slave. It's very hard for the New Testament of that, the NIV translation, to get rid of the word slave at that point because it's trading on literal slavery. But to become a Christian is to become now the Lord's slave. 1 Corinthians 6. You were not your own, you were bought at a price. You were bought as a slave of God. Now, I don't know how you feel about being labelled like that. I don't know how you feel about thinking of the Christian life as entering into slavery under the lordship of the Master Christ. But that is the radical way the New Testament sees it. And I think for many of us we find it confronting because... Um, well, confronting because it kind of... Um, it offends almost, it pushes against my sense of myself. I won't be owned by anyone, I won't be that kind of person. But the New Testament says we are dealing with the God of the universe who is rightly our master. And the essence of sin has actually been to think that I will not bow the knee as a slave to that God which is to shake our fist at the great glorious Lord of the universe, imagining we can be equals. No. The Bible is very clear. We owe him our life. We owe him our everything. We are slaves. But the New Testament wonderfully says this, that to be a slave of Christ is to be a freed man, is to be a person who's been set free. Because to be a slave of Christ is to be set free from sin as our master, to be set free from Satan as our master, to be set free from death, to actually come now into the place of true freedom, living a life as we were made to live, under the lordship of a master who is the Lord Jesus himself, who has come to die for us. It's handing our life back to the one who is rightful and loving. And notice what he has in store for us from this parable. A future where millions of dollars is trivial, is few things. A future age where there is everything you have ever longed for will be fulfilled. Are you jealous of the wealth of people today? 
It's a trivia compared to what is in store for us. And to use the words of a famous song, let it go. Let it go. I don't know what comes next, but let it go. <laughs> and enter your master's happiness. You see, that's conversion. And that's the hope of eternity, the sheer goodness of it, to enter into our God's happiness and to share with him forever. What a privilege and a joy. You know, the third slave, though, turns the whole story. The third slave responds to his master with these words. Verse 24, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what is belongs to you. Now remember this, this is a slave, this is not a servant. This is not someone who had the choice. This is a slave to a master. He's been given the master's gold, required by the master to do something. So the dimension of the horror of his actions is more intensified, you see. But look what the master says, verse 26. You wicked, lazy slave, so you knew that I harvest where I'd not sown and gathered where I'd not gathered seed. Now I think what the master's saying there, you thought of me like this. It's not true of me because look at what I've done with the first two slaves given them far more than they ever deserved and brought them into my inheritance, my, my joy. You have misread me badly. But even with your assessment, verse 27, even on your assessment of me, you should have at least put the money on deposit so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. You, you, you not only misread me, but on the basis of your read of me, you failed to do what you ought to have done. At every turn, this slave has failed. And so what follows is judgment. Now step back from this and think with me how we ought to live. What is this parable teaching about how we ought to live in light of the end? In light of judgment to come? Well, we ought to live with a right sense of who God is. A deepening understanding of the nature of our master. And we ought to live with a deep desire to build his assets, to grow what he has given us for his sake. You see, the slave was obligated. He was given much, given everything, but not just money, though that's the story. It's money used to illustrate a broader sense. There's a sense in which what's being said here is that God's person has been given money, but abilities, education, health, capacities, um, skills, opportunities, freedoms. You look at our lives, we have been given many bags of gold, if you like. What are we doing with these things that God has given us? The purpose of life is to multiply them, to hand them back, multiply. Now, in context, it doesn't mean to pursue the middle-class self-improvement program of the me project. Do you know, so I'm gifted in art, I'll become better and better at art. No, 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 no. That's, that's not at all in the frame of reference of the Bible. Now, it's not wrong to be good at art and enjoy art, and I'm not saying that at all. But in the context of the Bible, it's very clear that the God project is what we're to be involved in. What's the God project? 
Well, what's closest to his heart? He sends his only son into the world to seek and save the lost. He sends his son into the world to give up his life as a ransom for many, to save people. The very last words of the gospel when Jesus leaves us, ascends to the Father, are these words. Go now into all the nations to make disciples. What's closest to his heart is disciple making. What he has given us is to be used for his project and his project is building the church, growing people in faith, bringing more people to know the Lord Jesus. Another way to put it might be the language of fruit, to bear fruit, to bear fruit spiritually in my own life, to grow and deepen in my faith in Christ personally, but to bear the fruit of gospel growth, to see more and people added to the church and the church itself matured and deepen and grow, using the money, time, health, skills, opportunities I have to grow the work of God, to add depth to the church, to add people to the church. What are you doing with God, what God has given you? To that end. You know, the third slave stands for the person who perhaps saw himself as God's person, but the evidence that he wasn't, because he's eventually cast out, the evidence that he wasn't God's person was that he failed to see God properly and he failed to use what he had been given for God's project, for God's purposes. This is hugely serious. I want to suggest this is a critique of minimum effective Christianity. The kind of Christianity that imagines what's necessary is simply to believe Jesus, be saved and then live my life. Minimum effective Christianity is not how you wait. The kind of Christianity that locks into normal life, the life of those around me and drops out and pursues the life of... That is not what Jesus is teaching here. That's the kind of life where you bury your bag of money. You don't wait like that. Reflect on what you're doing for the cause of Christ. Don't measure yourself, though, by others because each of us have been given different amounts. You don't work out where you're at on the basis of comparing to each other, but what you do is look at what you've been given and what you're doing with what you've been given. What will the Lord say on the last day? Let me take you to the last parable, the third point. How do you wait? Let me suggest how you wait according to the last parable is practically love God's people. Let me give you a couple of things as we come to this last one just to make sure we get it right as well. Uh, the first thing is this. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goats aren't separated on the basis of how they fed, clothed, gave drink, visited people in need. There is something of that, verse 35, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. The righteous will answer, when did we see you hungry, feed you thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you and so on? The king will reply, verse 40, I tell you the truth, what you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. There is a suggestion that it seems like the basis of them being assessed to be on the right hand of God's sheep, not the left, goats, 
was the way they behaved. But that goes completely against the whole teaching of the New Testament. It goes completely against the reason Jesus is standing there at that moment. Why is he in that city at that time? Because he's come as a saviour, not a life coach. He's come as a saviour to save his people from their sin. He's come to give his life as a ransom for people who couldn't buy themselves out of slavery, who couldn't perform enough deeds to earn God's favour. He's come to call the sick, not the righteous. The very essence of the message of the gospel is that we can't do enough. We can't be good enough. Even my righteous deeds are filthy rags. The message of the gospel is our only hope is that the Lord Jesus has done it for us. He has died the death we ought to have died. Lived the life I ought to have lived. So that if I but just take his righteousness on as my own, I'll be forgiven. The very tone of the Bible is that Jesus is here to die. Not to coach us to be better and somehow earn God's favour. No, no, no. I mean, the key thing then becomes is... You get put on the right hand of the, of the king if you're a sheep. The goats get put on the left. The key question becomes, how do I become a sheep? How do you become a sheep? Not by doing sheep things. How do you become a sheep? By being born again. How do you become born again? By throwing yourself on the mercy of the king. By receiving Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour. By coming to him in humility, recognising my life has not been worthy. I've not been good enough. My only hope is forgiveness, the forgiveness found in Jesus. By throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ. By trusting him, you are saved. Saved by grace, not works. But the evidence that you are a sheep saved is that you will do sheep things what are the sheep things what's sheepness look like well sheepness is that you'll be someone who loves loves particularly the least of these my brothers and sisters verse 40 now here's the next thing to pick up to clarify what this is about and what it's not about who are the least of these, my brothers and sisters? There is a broad sense in the community that this really is a parable about people being loving to anyone in need. Now, the Bible does teach that, and so this is not a denial of that in any sense, but that doesn't come from this parable. Who are the least of these, my brothers and sisters? In verse 40, well, when you go through gospel, the gospel of Matthew, and look at the language of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, what becomes very evident is that Jesus is talking about Christians. Come back to just one place, chapter 12, and I'll show you this uh, worked out very clearly. The language of brother and sister is used in Matthew chapter 12 to refer to two kinds of people. One is, verse 46, his literal brothers. While Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, literally his brothers, his half-brothers. They were wanting to speak to Jesus. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, 
Here are my mothers, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You go through Matthew's Gospel and every occasion that the word brother does not refer to literal sibling, it refers only to Christian brethren. The same with the language of least, the little ones. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, the thing the sheep do is love other Christians in need. That evidence is their sheepness, that they see, they have an overflow of love practically that issues forth in them seeing a Christian brother in need, hungry, thirsty, in prison and meeting those needs. And Jesus says the extraordinary thing, verse 40, that when you did it for them, the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. Because there's a profound solidarity that Jesus has between his people, even the least of them, and himself. He is one with his people. So what's the message of this parable? There is something that is intrinsic to being a sheep. There is a sh an essential sheepness that evidences you are a sheep. And that is that you have a concern for others that belong to Christ as well. You are interested in the welfare of other sheep. And this is almost an unconscious overflow. It's also noteworthy in the parable that in both cases, the sheep and the goats are unaware they're loving Jesus in their actions of loving the Christians around them. They say, when did we see you sick or in prison or go and visit you? Verse 39. They didn't know that they were loving Jesus. They were just loving the Christian brethren. And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. You're just unaware of it. Now, I don't think that Jesus' praise would have been different if they did know that they were loving Jesus in loving their Christian brothers. But the point of the story is this, to vividly build this connection in loving Christian brothers and sisters, it shows something about how truly converted a Christian is. It's a work of the Spirit, I take it. To be a born-again spirit Christian, which is what all Christians are, they're spirit Christians, to be a Christian who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them, you will be drawn to other believers who love the Lord Jesus, who have the Spirit in them. And Jesus is giving this parable, aware that in a few days he will be dead, and in a few weeks gone. And I think he is saying to the early Christian community, I am leaving you in a hostile world. Love one another. In a world particularly where many Christian brethren will be imprisoned for their faith, they will go hungry, they will be unclothed. Love them. Stand with each other. Let me apply this to us. This is a radical expression of his radical teaching, which is that Christ is present in his people. It's a radical expression of that. And to put it negatively, let me run it negatively, then positive. You cannot claim to love Jesus and ignore his people. 
You cannot claim to love the one you cannot see, the Lord Jesus, and fail to care about his people that you can see. You can't live the independent, just me and God Christian life. It actually evidences that perhaps you aren't really a sheep. You know, I saw a, a frightening statement this week in my Facebook feed. I hate confessing that I see Facebook, but there you are. And it probably means I'm old. I should be watching Instagram or something else. But anyway, there you are. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know why these things come up in mind. Did, I'll see if any of you saw this. It was a picture of a church building with a cross over it and a group of people in the church and a bubble over their head and a picture of a person outside the church walking away with a bubble over their head. And the bubble over the people in church said this, uh, she's backsliding. And the bubble over the person walking away said this, I'm growing. So it's a picture of someone leaving church, I'm growing, a picture of people in church backsliding. Now it had this commentary, quotes, leaving the false artificial restrictive man-made institution to walk with God is the best thing you can do, but it can be lonely, just you and God. It will be lonely, into eternity lonely, because it will reveal you don't know the desires of Jesus for you. Now, of course, look, it is possible to walk away from the institution that becomes corrupted, walk away or seek to change it. <laughs> but to walk away from the people of God, the gathering of God's people, organised together to be serving Christ and using what we've been given to build the church and grow his people and add to it, to walk away from that is to express the possibility that you may never have been a sheep at all. And I do get the challenge, Christians are annoying. It's tricky being amongst Christians who aren't trendy, who aren't fashionable, who, who aren't cool, who aren't on, you know, we're, we're, we're a painful bunch of people, I get that. And I know you're looking at the others around going, yes, they are, and <laughs> they're looking at you going, yes, you are, and, um, but they're family. And you can't choose family, can you? You just learn to live with each other, loving each other with all our faults and frailties and problems. And you show the truth of your sheepness by your instinctive desire to serve the people of your God. Practically. To see them in need, to feed, to clothe, to visit, to see the lonely, you know, in our particular context on the Central Coast, we don't, have, we don't have the same kind of social problems you see in, in America or Africa and other continents around the world. We, we don't have it in our part of the world. Um, see, we have homelessness, but our homelessness is largely driven by men mental illness. It's a very different kind of homelessness. Or domestic violence. Um, but I tell you, some of the most needy people amongst us are the single isolated, the single mothers who are carrying the load themselves. We do have needs around us. We have spiritual needs of people who are isolated, who are wandering, people who are not in contact and connection. 
There are needs, practical needs, housing needs, clothing needs, financial needs, yes. Now, I must say as an encouragement to us, um, our church is, you know, um, praise God for his work amongst us. I see so often organically, spontaneously, you care for the needs of others around you practically. I, I just, I constantly hear of a meal that's been given, of a visit that's been undertaken, of a, of a food that's been delivered, of these things. I see, I see single mums being loved and supported and cared and so on. But the good we're doing, keep doing. This is why it's important to be part of a growth group, can, can I say. It's easy to come into a larger crowd, though we don't have much of that at the moment, but to come into a large crowd and be anonymous and walk back out again or stream from a distance and keep... It's easy, but to be part of a smaller group that's not formed on the basis of friendships, but formed on the basis that we love the Lord Jesus together. We're trying to grow in the Lord Jesus together. To be part of that group means you get to know the needs of people particularly and you can start investing and caring for each other practically. The private Christian life is a denial of the very essence of the life of Christ in you and in your brothers and sisters. Let me finish. I was talking with a friend this week uh, who's been reflecting on these passages and he was observing how much he's been given. He was concerned that having been given much, what was he doing with it all? And what was lovely is he wasn't at all concerned about what I thought. He was concerned about the fact that he would one day stand before his master now, he wasn't afraid of his salvation. He knew that the Lord Jesus covered him. He knew that he was in Christ. He knew that there'd been a life of evidence that, evidence that he was saved. But he was concerned to stand before his master and receive these words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so these passages stir him and have stirred him for years and continue to stir him. I found it really encouraging to talk with him because they had a sensitive heart he wanted to do well with what he'd been given. In two directions. He wanted to build the church with all that he had. And he wanted to just love people who were in need. How are you going? Take time to think. Take time to reflect. Do it under the grace of Christ who has loved us so much he gave himself for us. But how will he respond to the way you've used what he has given you? Have it, I pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace you have given us in Christ. Please help us wait well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.